Today we're talking about simplicity of goals. And somewhere along the way, you were in a class, the teacher pulled out a whiteboard and put some circles on it and said, what you must do is set a huge goal in the middle. This is the goal of life. This is where you're going after. It's probably career related. You've got your career there. And then you put these sub goals and you start running towards these goals. That's how you are successful. It might have been in junior high, high school, uh, college. Some of you are just now getting a whiteboard out and writing on it, whatever. But you set these goals and you started running towards them. And there was this game that you felt like you were in, in which you are running against your fellow man. And as we set these goals worldwide, here's the top 10 goals as said by the world of where they were at. Number one, lose weight. Lose weight seems to be everyone's number one goal for some odd reason. Write a book, stop procrastinating, fall in love, be happy. It's very random. Get a tattoo. That's number six. You guys all show me your tattoos real quick. Go on a road trip with no destination. That's actually one of my top 10, which is funny enough. Get married, travel the world, and then number 10 is drink more water for some reason worldwide. It's on their top 10. I don't know. I I find most of these goals actually a little bit ridiculous because I, I won't go into all that. But I would call them simple. And I think that's part of the problem. We have this this interesting idea about the word simple as in a negative term. We downplay simplicity. And when you look up what simplicity means, it means this, freedom from complexity or the absence of luxury, which is kind of the problem because it's the opposite of where most people sort of think life and goals should be sort of rushing to. But if you keep looking at this definition, it's the freedom from deceit or guile. The word guile is an interesting one. When you look up what that means, it's about it's about being cunning and attaining a goal, artful deception. So when you talk about simplicity or the freedom from guile, what you're saying is this. I want the freedom. I want the simplicity to pull away from what life's game is. And life's game is against our fellow man. We're here in church. And so we all love each other. And we're all really nice to each other. And, and sort of like, you know, we're not, we're together. We're doing this together. When in reality is we look at each other and we sort of say, oh, that's an interesting outfit she's wearing today. Oh, your kids are beautiful kids. That one's out of control. We have all these sort of, we're always thinking about this game. And then at work, it's even worse. And we have this competition going on. And even though we do care about each other, we have an artful deception because our goals come at a cost to other people's goals. Usually you're going for the similar positions, things like that. And so... When you talk about simplicity, it's starting to realize we're in a weird game and it's the opposite of what God really shows us throughout the Bible. It's the opposite of where God would have us. And so what I would like to do today with you is sort of re-look re at how we set goals and really talk about three totally different goals. The first one, the goal I want you to be looking at is what can I live without. What can I live without? It's one of those things that we are not taught to ask throughout our life. What can I live without? One of the early writers that spoke about Christians, his name was Tertullian. 
And he, right after Jesus dies, there's this movement of Christians that happens. And you can look at the writers of these generations. This is one of them. And what this guy writes about this movement, he says, look, see how they love one another. When they first saw the Christians, the first thing people are writing about is see how they love one another. In fact, this is kind of where we've come from into a society today or this contemporary culture in which we have this passion to possess. Kind of the opposite of where we were. This complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more. In fact, we come, come up with a name for it. It's called the rat race. And we all feel like we're on it. This, this race against time and man to accumulate more and more stuff. And we as Christians sometimes forget that where we started was this idea that people are more important than possessions. The early Christians, as you watch them, the martyrs and the people, the missionaries, and those starting this movement, there was this people are more important than possessions. I don't care about what I own. I just want to continue to spread the word of who Christ is. Julian the Apostate, he was an enemy of those early Christians. He hated the early Christians. And he writes about them. He says, those, those Galileans, as he calls them, Those Galileans continue to feed their poor, and they're feeding our poor too. He was actually angry about that. It didn't make sense to him that they would feed not only their own people, but they would come and feed his poor as well. That's what is written about these early Christians. By AD 250, the Christians in Rome, it's written they were caring for some 1,500 needy people. The bishop Dionysus of Corinth He notes in his writings that he was sending supplies to many churches in every city. Every city, the churches are running out of supplies because they're giving so much. There are a lot of verses throughout the Bible that speak of, right after Acts, this generation of the first movement of Christ. And this movement was built on people helping each other, serving each other. It was an incredible movement, and that is where our movement started Where things got fuzzy, where everything started to change, is when the persecution of the church turned to the assimilation of the church. The church became part of the fabric of the communities. When that happened, there was a switch in what happened to the Christian mind, and the Christian mind became part of the community. And when that happened, the world, including the church, became dominated by the secular materialism that everybody else had. When we look at Scripture in Matthew 19, we see this man come up to the teacher, come up to Christ, and he says to Christ, Teacher, what good thing must I do that I may obtain eternal life? He assumes, just like us, what do I have to do? Because I've got these goals, I've got this checklist And everything in my life has told me that's how I live. I live by checklists and goals. Therefore, when you talk about eternal life, I've got to put it as one of my goals, as one thing to check off. What must I do to obtain that goal like I've done all my other goals? Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? Which seems like a weird twist on the question that he asks which is Jesus did that all the time. So when you ask that question, the reason it's sort of funny to us is because we know the end. 
We know that Jesus dies on the cross. We know that he rises again in three days. We know how the story continues to play out and the movement and the change. So when he asks that, we're kind of like, that seems like a weird question, but it wouldn't be for where he was in this time period. Because at this point, you would have to say Jesus is a liar in that he is saying things, that he is God, that he is the son of God, that he is the church. He's saying that the temple is going to be torn down and then built in three days. Everything he's saying, you would think that he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, like he's a crazy person. And so if you don't think those two things and you're following him, then you have to think of him as Lord. So if this guy is coming up to him and saying, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? then you must be past liar, past lunatic, and at Lord. Well, if he's at Lord, you should already know what to do because you've looked and you've seen exactly what it is. It's the Ten Commandments. It's been said your whole life. It's been said by Jesus. He says it again here. He says, well, you already know what to do. Why would you ask me what is good? You should know that. But the reason that he asks is the same reason we ask. We have a list. And on that list, we have... God, I've taken care of that one, check. I've got my, my, my wife, my husband, my mate, check. I've got my kids, check. I've got my house, check. Or if you haven't got those, you're at the point in your life where those are on your list. So you're sort of thinking about career so that I can get the house, so I can have the wife, so I can have the kids, on and on. And then we check the last one, which is good person. So I've got my, my good person checked. Therefore, I follow the Ten Commandments. I'm at church today. I've got that one checked. But I'm at this place in which I feel like there's something missing. How could I have checked everything off and still feel like there's more? There's something not quite right. I feel it in my gut that there's something that I'm missing about this life. And it just doesn't feel quite right. And that's what he is feeling just like we are feeling. And Jesus says, good. I'm glad that you're at that place so that I can take you to that next place. Jesus says to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And unfortunately, like I think many of us would respond, he can't do that because he has to ask the question, what can I live without? He takes a step back like we take a step back when we hear that phrase, I don't know what I can live without. I haven't thought about living without. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8, it says, but whatever things that were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss and view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. When you read those verses, do you say, amen? I didn't hear a lot of amens. (laughs) Is that describing your life as you read that? A lot of people would say, no, I haven't quite got to that position. Simplicity of goals begins with understanding what God's goals would be for my life. Why would he have created me in the first place? As I read Revelation, I know the ending is huge. There's a thousand-year reign. There's all this massive things happening. When I read about my life, I've got 
80 to 100 years, if I'm lucky. Maybe one of you will make it to 105. It's a breath. So why were you created for that breath when most of it takes place later? There's something about this breath that we're supposed to learn and remember, and we've gotten caught up in the game against our fellow man. In Luke 14, so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions, which doesn't seem fair, right? It seems a little intense. We have to take care of our families. Well, he addressed that. He already addressed it in verse 26. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Harsh, incredibly harsh. Why would he say that? He says it because there is a movement forming behind him at this point. In fact, the Pharisees are freaking out at this point. The Romans are starting to get worried at this point because there are masses upon masses of people beginning to follow Christ. And why wouldn't you? You see Christ taking a few fish and bread and feeding thousands again and again. He's just feeding people. And then you see Christ healing people left and right, walking through the streets. They touch him and boom, healed. I can eat I can never be sick again. If I follow this guy, it costs me nothing. It's fantastic. Why would I not follow him? It's like the circus is in town. He's doing miracles and juggling. At this point, he stops to the thousands of people following him and says, there is a cost. It's not as free as you think it is. It's going to cost you everything. And he uses this emotive and challenging language. He says, you must hate everyone else. Does he really want you to hate everyone else? No, not at all. In fact, we read what he really wants us to do and to love everyone else. But he wants you to understand that nothing comes at the cost of God. He has to be number one. If he's not number one, then you've missed what this breath of life is supposed to be. So if you, are, if you are told by your parents you're not allowed to follow Christ, you're not allowed to be at that church, you're not allowed to have this Savior, if you're told things like that, you have to disobey your parents because nothing becomes in front of number one. Even the Ten Commandments, which says obey your mother and father, you don't do it if it's at the cost of number one, and that is God. It's the harsh language of if you're standing before a terrorist, and he says, you must deny Christ or I will kill your friend. You have to be in a position where the Lord is Lord and nothing comes in front of number one. It's harsh. And the truth is, most of us will never be in a situation like that. It's much more subtle and easy for us. And we fail in the subtleties. The subtlety of, I have to work and I have to make ends meet. And I have to work hard to take care of my family. So when it comes to time, I run out of time when, it, when, it, when I need to do things for my God. We hear a sermon last week about the simplicity of time. And so last week, I would imagine what you did was each day you blocked an hour of your schedule to, to pray with your God because nothing would come in front of number one after everything we heard about how important time is to God that you opened your Bible every day to spend time learning about this God, 
because he's that important to you and nothing would come in front of number one, that you would be in Bible studies, that you'd make sure you were at church, you would be part of the activities, you would serve because nothing would come in front of number one, which is God, right? Or did you hear the sermon and you got a little too busy and so you missed prayer a few days, you missed Bible study a few days because the subtleties of life and making a living so I can take care of my kids. He'd want me to take care of my kids, right? No, not at the cost of number one. Is my kids important? Absolutely. Am I going to take care of my family? Yes, I want to be involved in sports. None of that is bad. That's what Carlos was saying. It's all awesome, but not at the cost of number one. And that's what Jesus turns and says, don't put anything in front of number one, the cost is your life. What can I live without? Teacher, what can I live without? Are you ready to be at that position? Are the things that I'm doing for a better life actually keeping me from a better life? Take a moment and think about how you're spending your time, how you're setting your goals. On your notes, there's three lines trying to stay with the simplicity message. It's simple. Three lines. Write three things you can live without. Go ahead. No one, no one started writing right there, so I wanted to make sure you're all writing. Three things that you can live without. I'll give you a moment. Is it difficult to write those three things? Because that's weird, right? That shouldn't be difficult. So we need to be thinking about that. Over lunch today, you're going to go to lunch with your family or your friends. Talk through it. Here's the three things I wrote. What did you write? What? You can't write that? No, I'm just kidding. You just have to talk through it and work through it. Why weren't you able to write three things? Are they, is your, what you're doing that important? Is it based on God things? We're taught this weird game that we're against each other in a game against some sort of accumulation of stuff. We need to rethink how we're setting our goals. Number one, what can I live without? Number two, silence from the need to control others. I write that like that for a very specific reason that we'll get to. Anthony, the father of the monks in AD 251, about 18 years old, hears a sermon kind of like this or reads these kind of verses and makes a decision. He sells everything except enough to take care of his sister, and then he retreats into the desert for 20 years. <laughs> Pretty intense. I'm not asking you guys to do that. In the desert, he writes this. In the solitude, I was forced to face my false, empty self. I had to die to the opinion of others. He learned to strip away those hindrances that keep him from a relationship with Christ, which is really built upon the opinions of others. It's where we find ourselves constantly. Many, as you look through history, I shouldn't say many, a few through history have done this. You see it in the Bible where they, they go to the desert. You see it in our early uh, monks and fathers, early mothers. You see them do these kind of things, maybe a little bit today, but not as much. And they retreat to the desert. They retreat away because they have to strip all that stuff that we've been taught out of us. You got to get out these opinions as if they matter. Simplicity and goals is understanding the value of silence in our life. 
silence frees us from the need to control others. One reason we can hardly bear silence is because you feel so helpless when it's quiet. If we sat here in just 30 minutes of silence, it would get a little bit awkward. You feel helpless in those kind of moments because we desperately need people to agree with us, to be on our side about stuff. We're always in these positions of, of judging people or evaluating people. It's just a natural habit that we do when we see someone. We've been trained this way. Silence is a deep spiritual discipline that we have to add to our life. When we become quiet enough to let go of people, we begin to learn compassion for them. We start to see people differently as if each one was created by God. And if they were created by God, there's something in there. But I have to be silent to hear what God is saying. And then I speak into the hurts and the needs of people. I can speak one word that will set someone free if I'm quiet enough to hear what God is saying, to listen. Abbot Agatha, she, she declared, there's no labor so great as praying to God. With any other labor that a man undertakes in his life of religion, however instant and close he keeps to it, he hath some tests, but prayer hath the travail of a mighty conflict to one's last breath. Prayer is at the heart of the desert experience. They would pull away so they would understand the power of prayer and nothing would get in the way of that. The goal of silence, it's not really about being quiet. It's about understanding and adjusting to what we have been taught. And we have been taught to continue to talk and continue to gain and accumulate when the reality is we need to be stepping back and setting goals based on what Christ is saying through our prayer life. What does Christ say when you pray? What are simple goals you add? Maybe you're adding the goal of prayer. Maybe the simple goal is I'll pray one minute longer than I did yesterday. And each day you add that. Set simple goals to give God control and to be quiet and listen. Matthew 6, 7 says, When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered only by repeating their words again and again. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Jesus speaks of prayer as he's walking on the planet over and over again. In fact, right before the other story in Luke about the rich young ruler, he speaks of the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee coming before God and praying like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. The swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. On and on the Pharisee goes. And the tax collector, he prays, can't even look up, beating his breast. I am a sinner. Be merciful to me. And Jesus speaks of that second man. I tell you, this man, he went to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Simplicity is the silence of the need to control others. Humbling yourself before God in prayer. Keep alert and praying. Otherwise, temptation will overpower you. For though 
The spirit is willing. The body is weak. Simplicity in goals. We've been taught this game. We've been taught this game against our fellow man, and it's not. It's quite the opposite of how God created us. Set new goals in your life. What can I live without? Silence from the need to control others. And where is my divine center? Sounds a little bit like yoga. Like I want you all to get on one leg and find your inner cheese. (laughs) Martin Luther, he says, good works does not make a man, but a good man does good works. Evil works does not make a wicked man, but a wicked man does evil works. The point, whatever is inside of you, that is what's going to bleed out. If, you've, or if you're in bondage to some kind of sin, it will bleed out. If you're in bondage to pride, that's going to bleed out in everything that you do. Or fear. If you find yourself in fear, that's going to come out in your life. Or manipulation. Your manipulation to control others' actions around you. As you are using your simplicity to accumulate stuff, that's going to come out in what you do. If you're going to use your uh, uh, manipulation to control other people, that's going to come out in what you do. Whatever is inside that inner self, it's naturally going to come out. And we have been controlled by our desire to impress others. We've been told about this yardstick that we measure everyone with. So when we, even when we show up at church, we're measuring ourselves compared to other people. How am I compared to them? How, what does my wife or husband look like compared to their wife and husband? How are my kids looking compared to their kids? They're in soccer and baseball, but I'm in soccer, baseball, and basketball. I think we're winning. <laughs> we always do that. We have this yardstick of where I'm at with my job compared to those around us, compared to my brothers and sisters. We measure our life with this, I must impress I have to measure my life compared to those around me. And I am not free to be simple, to have simplicity of loving my neighbors. The early Quakers, also called friends, they were offended by the gluttonous excess of all those around them. Us as friends, I I don't think we've gotten that far away from it. We should still be offended. George Fox says, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. And they started this movement. And the movement was the conviction to hear the voice of Christ and let that move through them. If you summed up this early movement, it would be Christ has come to teach his people himself. The thinking is, I read in the Bible that Christ dwells within me, that the Holy Spirit has come in me. Well, if that's in me, I don't need people to tell me about what God says. I should be hearing what God says. And in my prayer life, as I focus in on the inner self, the Holy Spirit, Christ dwelling within me, that should cause my actions out. That should be what is bleeding out in everything I do. So when I go in and I pray, do I hear God saying, accumulate more? I want you to buy more toys. Is that what I hear when I pray? When I spend time in prayer, is it to gain what I can gain at the cost of others? Is that what God says when you pray? Or do you not pray? What is God saying when you pray to him? And then you hear the inner voice that speaks through you and says, I want to use you 
in this short breath to be an extension of who I am. I want to use you because I have created you with purpose and I've given you so much talent. That talent is to be used. In the next chapter of Luke, we see Jesus speak of another parable and the parable is of the talents. I gave this person 10 and they created 10 more. I gave this person five and they created five more. I gave this person one and he hid it away as if it was only for him so he could give it back to me. He speaks of that person and says, by your own words, I will now judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? God expects us to use our talent. He wants us to use our talent. That expectation is not for you to set a series of goals for yourself. The expectation is I've given you so much talent that, yeah, you're going to be incredibly successful as you follow my plan for your life. I want you to experience rich provisions. I want you to be blessed beyond imagination, but I want you to see it in my eyes. In verse 26, he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. This sermon is not a sermon about getting rid of goals, not at all. It's about reevaluating goals to understand how God would use you, what God wants to do with your life. Simplicity in goals is when you make every goal focus on what God's goals are for your life. God spoke so often about blessing those who follow him. Chapter after chapter of I'm going to take care of your every need. Why would we not go to the divine center and follow that plan? I asked the worship team to come back because I wanted to give you time to really evaluate your goals. I asked them to do more worship on the end than at the beginning because I want to give you time. On your notes there, there's nine areas in which most people set their goals. They set these goals and they're usually selfish in motive. I want you to reevaluate your goals and how you write them and then write them down through this first song. When you look at these goals, you see God. What did you write about God? You are, you are number one. I will put you first no matter what. Help me, Lord, to have a goal where I wake up 30 minutes earlier so I can set my divine center on you and let you lead me through this day. You write it the way you need to write it. I'm just giving you some, some ways to move it into a God-centered goal. In the self one, help me learn a second language. You know, whatever your goal is, but help me learn a second language so that I can reach my neighbor that I cannot talk with right now and tell them about Christ. You've now centered a goal that is an awesome goal for yourself, but you made it about God. My marriage, Lord, let me treat my wife as a gift. Lord, Align our schedules so that we can pray together again because we're so busy. Lord, help me get this goal in line with you and what you would have for us. Lord, help me in my education at work. Help me get that next position so that in that position I can bless more, I can give more, and I can help this become a place that worships you that my actions throughout the day would be so Christ-centered they would see you. That's setting a goal with a goal in mind, but a Christ-centered goal. My, my finances, Lord, help me to be debt-free, including my house, so that I can begin giving 90% to the church, 90% of everything I make. 
That's a pretty, that's an amazing goal. I like that goal. Good one. You guys are awesome. My church, I will commit to coming 10 minutes early every Sunday because I want to set my mind right before I begin worship, before I hear the word, and not be rushing in. Lord, help me to set a goal of 10 minutes early. Most of you would have failed that goal today, just saying. My ministry, Lord, help me, Lord, add a ministry, hub, youth, children, something, so I can begin giving you 20% of my time instead of giving my time to everybody else. I don't want you to write the exact goal I just said. I want you to write your goal, but take the time and make each one God-centered. And when you finish, then join in worship and praise God for what he's doing.